All right, show of hands, how many of you love history? Whoa, that's actually more than I thought. Praise the Lord, you're in for a treat tonight. All right, so this evening, there's actually a number of pieces that we really need to kind of dig into some history in order to understand where our text is going and also to understand how this particular text is unbelievably applicable to where we are even right now. So actually, we're going to go back to 1961 for just a moment. In 1961, Professor Ralph Elliott, an Old Testament professor at Midwestern Theological Seminary, published a book entitled The Message of Genesis. And in the book, he actually was sharing what he referred to as a very moderate approach to the book of Genesis. And his moderate approach is that Genesis chapter 1 through 11 was mythological. It was not true. He actually said there was no historical basis. He went on to say that Melchizedek was actually the priest of Baal and not of Yahweh. Now, those couple of statements alone has bearing on the identity of Christ as well as our need for salvation. So the publication of that book became the catalyst for what has been referred to as the conservative resurgence within the Southern Baptist Convention. For years, pastors across the convention had been sounding an alarm that our Southern Baptist Seminary presidents, many of the professors, some of the SBC publication groups, as well as even some of our mission agencies were moving rapidly towards what is referred to as neo-orthodoxy or theological liberalism. Now let me pause there for just a moment. Theological liberalism is not the same as social liberalism. It's not the same as political liberalism. This is going to be one that I'm going to define here in just a moment. So theological liberalism and neo-orthodoxy are both attacks against the inerrancy of Scripture itself. Neo-orthodoxy defines the Word of God solely as the Son, found in John chapter 1, verse 1, but at the same time, it says that the Bible is man's interpretation of the son's actions. Therefore, the Bible is not inspired. The Bible is only a human document that has truth in parts. That is neo-orthodoxy. Now, neo-orthodoxy and theological liberalism both teach that revelation depends on personal interpretation of the individual. That is truth is truth as you define it to be. So I might have one interpretation of the scriptures and you might have another interpretation of the scriptures and we might have a different interpretation than everybody else and according to neo-orthodoxy and theological liberalism, it's all okay. You all do know that is not okay. I've been teaching for years and years when training people to study the word of God, there's one interpretation of scripture there's many applications of Scripture. That is, there is one interpretation that original writer was sharing with the original audience for the original purpose in that original setting. And that is only one interpretation of how that letter was intended for that audience to receive it. Now, when we study Scripture, we'll find that oftentimes there's many applications as to how that truth can be applied into our life. But we need to understand the interpretation as the writer intended it to be. So, Neo-Orthodoxy and theological liberalism did not begin in 1961. In fact, you can trace their roots back further 
back prior to World War I with the influence of Karl Barth as well as Emil Brunner. Now, Eliot's book simply brought both of those to light a little bit more within our Southern Baptist Convention. Now, the outrage that happened within the local church back in 1961 was strong. So for the next 30 years, we found that those who were theological conservatives, they voted out, they fired, and they replaced just about everyone that they could find in positions that were teaching neo-orthodoxy as well as theological liberalism. One of the chief architects of that time wrote about that particular moment, that period in SBC life, and shared this quote. It was a reformation that was achieved at an incredibly high cost. Part of the cost was a departure of 1,900 SBC churches who came together in what was referred to as the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. A part of the cost was years of what was considered to be bad press in the news. A part of the cost was also an extended season of hurt feelings and disruptive conventions and denominational fighting. There was a high cost that came with that, but the issue was the stakes were too high to not fight. It was too much for people to remain silent. That was not a fight about trivial issues like worship styles and preferences. It wasn't a fight about church polity. It, it was a fight for the inerrancy of Scripture itself. And as a denomination, we were at a crossroads, and that is, is God's Word truth, and can it be trusted? Is it reliable? If it is truth, then how long would Southern Baptists sit as denominational presidents and professors were teaching the next generation of pastors that the Word of God is not true? That's why the fight happened. That's why it was necessary. I, I praise God that there was a group that was willing to stand up and take it on the chin. They were willing to fight because the stakes were too high. Now, almost 50 years ago, there was a battle within SBC life over the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, let me give you all a little bit of a warning right now. In case you have not been following it, there is another battle that is looming within the SBC right now. It is not a fight for the inerrancy of Scripture. It is a fight for the sufficiency of Scripture. Is the Word of God sufficient for all matters of faith and practice? Or do we need to supplement God's Word with man's writings to better connect with culture? That's the current battle that is looming right now. It's in the infancy stage, but it's a battle that's coming. By the way, we need to fight that one too. The Word of God is sufficient. It is complete. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is what we need for all matters of faith and practice. So my point here is there are times that you agree to disagree because the fight's not that big. And there are other times that you have to engage the fight because the essence of the faith is on the line. 
If you don't stand up at a particular point, you find that not standing up is going to lead to far more problems and issues that are coming down the road. Now, there are times that we can recognize the beauty of diversity within the body of Christ when it comes to non-essentials. But if you're talking about the essentials of the faith, you got to stand up and you got to speak up and you got to be willing to take it on the chin sometimes. So in 1961, biblical conservatives were willing to fight and listen to this. Today, we reap the benefit of their scars. There might be a time down the road, 40 years from now, that the next generation of believers will need to reap the benefit of our scars. Now, almost 2,000 years ago, there was another meeting that was called by church leaders. They came together, and another fight was looming on the horizon. That is a group called the Judaizers. I've brought that group up to you all before. They had infiltrated the early church, and they were teaching that Jesus was not sufficient for salvation. And they said that a person needed to have faith in Jesus. That was right. But then they said the person also needed to submit to the law of Moses. They needed to follow the law in addition to faith in Christ. Now, that group followed the Apostle Paul around on his missionary journeys. They caused trouble everywhere he went. They mocked his teachings about salvation being by grace through faith in Christ alone. They accused him of being a self-proclaimed apostle. They said that he was teaching heresy and that he was straying from the true gospel message. Now, at this point, I want you to think about the context of who they were able to influence. Early believers, most of those in the early church, were of Jewish background. So when the Judaizers come through and they say, it's actually faith in Jesus plus adherence to the Mosaic law, that almost sounds right. That sounds comfortable. That's what we know. That's where we've been. It was giving people an opportunity to just kind of blend Jesus in with what they already lived and what they already thought and what they already believed. You know what that's called? Syncretism. One of the issues that's happened in missionaries as they're going to other countries is oftentimes they would employ what was referred to as syncretism in an attempt to connect with a different culture. And here's what they would do sometimes. They would say, you worship the sun god. We worship the son of God. We're worshiping the same thing. Let me tell you about him. That's not it. You can't blend the two of those together. I understand a desire to connect, but when you connect, you have to connect on the essence of why it is the gospel is necessary. You've been created by a holy God. You were separated from that God by your sin. There is nothing that we could do to be reconciled to our creator. Our good works, not enough. Our religion, not enough. Our best intentions, not enough. But Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived a sinless life. When he died on the cross, he died a substitutionary death for our sins. When he rose from the dead three days later, he rose that we might have life, and he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. That is a universal problem that is addressed by the gospel. When it comes to the gospel, it cannot be added to, it cannot be modified, it cannot be changed and it still be the gospel message. 
2,000 years ago, people were so confused over the teachings of the Judaizers that it was leading to mass confusion and problems within the early church. So now the early church leaders had a question. Does salvation come by grace through faith in Jesus alone? Or does salvation come by faith in Jesus plus adherence to the Mosaic law? Today in our verse-by-verse study of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is going to refer to that pivotal meeting within the history of the church. It was a meeting that took place in Jerusalem. And in this particular section, he wrote down the problem, how the problem was addressed, why the problem was important, and what they did to protect the essence of the gospel. I love the fact in Galatians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. Here it is, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. He's writing to believers at the church of Galatia. That's the original audience. But for 2,000 years, as these letters have been circulated through churches, we are beneficiaries of that fight from 2,000 years ago. They fought so that the essence of the gospel has also been preserved for us. What a blessing that we find in this text. So we are where we are. We know what we know. We have what we have because for 2,000 years, there's been Christians who are willing to die on the hills that are worth fighting for. Every generation gets challenged in this area. Every generation is going to have to decide for themselves, will the truths of the gospel, will the truths of God's word end with us, or are we willing to fight so that the next generation has it preserved for them? So there's a statement that was given by George Santayana, Spanish poet and a philosopher. He once said, Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. May we learn from history so that we don't repeat some of the mistakes of the past. I invite you, if you would, look with me in your Bibles, Galatians chapter number 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. I'm speaking on the subject of the fight for freedom. The fight for freedom. As you find your place in the text, let me take just a moment to reestablish a little bit of the background, a little bit of the context here. As you've seen, each time that this bumper, video bumper, comes up before I get up to preach, you'll see that it talks about over and over again that Galatians is about freedom. The key verse is Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Everything that you find in the book of Galatians either addresses attacks against freedom, how the gospel brings freedom, warnings about losing freedom, or encouragement to embrace the freedom that we currently have in Christ. So in chapters 1 and 2, the apostle Paul is stating the problem, and he's establishing his apostolic right to address the issues. In chapters 3 and 4, he talks about freedom that comes through salvation. In chapters 5 and 6, he talks about freedom that comes through sanctification. That's the background. Now let's look at what the text says. Galatians chapter 2, let's begin in verse number 1. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. 
It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But even when Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. And we're going to explain that in a moment. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me Barnabas, the right hand of Christian fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we've got a massive text with massive implications. God, may we cautiously and carefully walk through your word in a way in which it captures the essence of what you desire for it to share. God, may we be changed by your word. May we know the hills that are worth dying on. And Lord, may we also recognize the moments where the non-essentials allow us to have beauty and diversity within the body. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we enter into chapter 2, the focus is on the events of what's referred to as the Jerusalem Council. Now, when I say Jerusalem Council, it is because in Galatians chapter 2, it is describing from Paul's perspective the events that are recorded in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. So tonight, if you're wondering where I'm getting a lot of the text and a lot of the connections and a lot of the history, I'm actually walking through two parallel texts. I'm walking through what we find over in Acts 15, as well as what we're seeing right here in Galatians chapter 2. Now, according to Acts chapter 15, verse 5, the Judaizers were a sect of Pharisees that claimed that salvation came through Jesus plus being circumcised, if a person was not already a Jew, and living under the law of Moses. Now, in chapter 15, verse 6, it tells us that the apostles and the elders, they came together to look into this matter. They wanted to, to talk amongst themselves. They wanted to convene a meeting. They want to find out, is what they're saying actually true? Now, at that meeting, Peter addressed the council, and he clearly stated that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Acts chapter 15, verses 6 through 11. Paul and Barnabas, they addressed that same crowd, and they shared that God was doing an incredible work among the Gentiles in chapter 15, verse 12. It was kind of a precursor to what happens when somebody goes on a missionary trip, 
and they come back and they share with everybody else. This is what God is doing around the world, which, by the way, pause here for a moment. If you have not had an opportunity to be a part of a mission trip and to see what God is doing, I'm going to encourage you to prayerfully consider taking a trip with us in 2022. You know why? Because when you see what God is doing in other parts of the world, it gives you a greater appreciation for what God's doing right here. When you see the fact that the same God we're worshiping here seven days a week is the same God that people are worshiping in Africa, in Asia, in South America, same God that they're worshiping in a small church in the villages in Honduras, same God they're worshiping in major cities in Thailand and around the world. When you see what God's doing, there's a beautiful appreciation for the expanse and the size of the kingdom of God. It's incredible. Some of the greatest moments of my Christian journey have happened when I'm on a mission field serving alongside of brothers and sisters in Christ who when you meet them for the first time, here it is, their spirit bears witness with each other. You, you know, you, you know that they are serving the same Jesus that you're serving. So in this we find that Paul and Barnabas, they address the crowd, and they share. This is what God is doing among the Gentiles in chapter 15, verse 12. Now, we also find that finally James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, he addressed the council, and he affirmed that what Peter shared was actually true because he quoted from the prophets in chapter 15, verses 13 through 21. Now, the consensus of the council was clear. Here's what they came to. Jews and Gentiles are made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter which side you're looking at, it, they're made right with God the exact same way. Now, while the law was our tutor that led us to Christ, the law could not save anyone. Here, here's your reference off to the side. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. So here was the essence of the argument that they were working through. If the law was insufficient to reconcile the Jews to God, why would the law be required to reconcile Gentiles to God? They're like, that doesn't make sense. We have to go back and say, what was the law intended for? So from the perspective of the leadership that gathered in Jerusalem, the argument was done. The gospel is the gospel of grace. It's not the gospel of the law. The Judaizers were wrong. The apostle Paul was right. End of story. Let's move on with ministry. But the Judaizers were not going to let go. They kept coming. That same group, they were so persistent in this. They followed Paul on his missionary journeys in order to cause problems at the next place that he was preaching. But they were incredibly persuasive with leading people astray, specifically those who were young and unlearned in their faith. That's why in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, here's what Paul says. I'm amazed that you were so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. That's the word anathema. It's it's damned. It's separated forever. He, He is pronouncing a curse over anybody who is preaching a gospel other than what was proclaimed as the gospel of grace. So when the Jerusalem council disagreed with the Judaizers, they switched their tactics. Oh, listen to the tactic switch. Listen to what happened. If you can't destroy the message, discredit the messenger. Do you know that saying tactic is alive and well today? Not just in the church, it's alive and well in every facet of human interaction. They were telling people that Paul was this self-professed apostle teaching heresy, and the gospel that he preached was different than the gospel that was proclaimed by the other apostles. So here's our question. What did Paul do? What did he teach? What did he share at that moment in an effort to fight for freedom. Now, there's going to be several points that we get into. We only have time for one of those tonight. You know, sometimes when your introduction is 25 minutes, you only get to one point by the time this is done. But we need to make sure we actually know what the point is that we're trying to get to and why it's important. So here is the one piece. That is, the gospel is not of private interpretation. The gospel is not of private interpretation. We're going to pull this thing apart. We're going to put it back together. We're going to give some accompanying statements on the side. I want you to know by the time this evening is done what it means that the gospel is not of private interpretation. Now, if there's a a Twitter-worthy quote, if if there's a piece that you want to hold on to after this, here it is. If the gospel we preach is not the gospel Christ gave, it is not the gospel at all. If the gospel we preach is not the gospel Christ gave, it is not the gospel at all. The gospel means good news. It is the good news of how sinful people can be reconciled to a holy God through the atoning work of a sacrificial Savior. It's the good news. The gospel cannot be tinkered with. It cannot be changed. It cannot be modified and still be the gospel. Now, I've already shared that there's at least two major attacks Now, at least two, there's many others, but at least two that are still impacting the church right now. I'm going to briefly go back over these in case you were not there. But the reason I focus on these two is these are two that impact primarily Protestant evangelical churches. Protestant evangelical churches. So there is a present-day group, very similar to the Judaizers, who want to add the law back to the gospel message. They're referred to as the Hebrew Roots Movement also known as the Sacred Name Movement and or the Worldwide Church of God. Now, after receiving some bad press under each of those different titles, many of those individuals have tried to infiltrate Messianic Jewish congregations. They try to get in because they feel like that's going to be fertile soil for them to share these same teachings. Now, regardless of the name they use, they teach the church has veered away from the true teachings and the Hebrew roots of the Bible. They believe that mainline Christianity has been indoctrinated with Roman as well as Greek philosophy and that the true gospel message of Jesus Christ has been corrupted by a pagan imitation. 
They teach that the believer is to walk a Torah-observant lifestyle. That is, we are to keep the Sabbath on the seventh day of the week. We are to celebrate all of the Jewish feasts and festivals. We are to also keep the dietary laws. And we are to avoid the paganism of Christianity, otherwise referred to as Easter and Christmas. Now, a second major attack comes from those who advocate what has been referred to as the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is also gathered under another banner. It's often referred to as word of faith. Word of faith. It teaches that every believer is to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. It teaches that the only thing standing between you and that brand new Mercedes Benz is your unbelief. If you could just correct that belief issue, you could have what you want. You could have that new car. You could have that new house. You could have that healthy body. All you have to do is name it, believe it, and claim it. Now, should not be a surprise to you all, I am not a name it and claim it preacher. I'm not a blab it and grab it preacher. I'm not a say it and you're going to see it preacher. I'm a gospel preacher. You know why this is so important? Because that entire movement shifts Christianity from a focus on Jesus to it's all about you. It's all about you getting what you want. It's all about you having your best right here. By the way, if your best is here, we've really missed it. Our best is in heaven one day. This is temporary. So when somebody is saying, if you just believe God is going to heal that body, oh, do you know how destructive that is to a person who is on a deathbed? And now on top of the facts that they're suffering physical pain, somebody is telling them the reason you're still in pain is because your faith is not strong enough. Here's a word for you. Every person Jesus healed still eventually died. That is, that's not a fact of somebody's faith not being strong enough to walk it through. Sometimes it's a part of God's sovereign plan that we don't always understand in the moment, but it brings him greater glory for all eternity. And if we're not okay with that, we're going to be mad at God a lot. I have no time for a prosperity gospel that prostitutes the gospel for selfish gain. The gospel is the message of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So Jesus warned people about that same thing, about that it's about money, it's about me, it's about mine. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal. The irreconcilable differences between the prosperity gospel and the gospel of Jesus is best summed up with what Jesus said, Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve God and money. Now, please hear what I'm about to say. Please hear me. Please hear me. Please hear me. There's nothing wrong with having money. Money is not inherently wrong. 
Nothing wrong with having money. Here's the problem. When money has you, when money now becomes your God, when walking in obedience with Jesus falls in second line behind how much is it going to cost me, that's where the problem begins to come out because Jesus will challenge us along the way in order to open our hands so that he has an opportunity, here it is, to take what he desires to place somewhere else. But when your hands open, he can also put in what he desires so that you can continue to bless others in the future. Now, if there's anything that the Jerusalem Council has taught us and anything that the Apostle Paul is teaching in Galatians 2, it is that the gospel is not of private interpretation. I've just given two major attacks against the gospel right now. I want us to understand what that statement means. When it's talking about the gospel of not of private interpretation, it means if you make it up, it's not the gospel. If you change it, it's not the gospel. If you add something to it, it's not the gospel. If the gospel we preach is not the gospel Christ gave, it is not the gospel at all. So in verses 1 and 2, it says, Then after an interval of 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now there's a lot going on here. Let's take a moment to unpack it. Paul has already established that the other apostles and he had not been in close connection he said that first part of this i didn't consult with flesh and blood i went to the arabian desert for three years now he's coming back and he's saying after an interval of 14 years apparently he wants us to see he was not in a massive hurry for the meet and greet with the other apostles so he didn't see any of them directly after that damascus road experience but it does say that he stayed with Peter for 15 days in Jerusalem and he met James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. That's found in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. So 14 years after that visit, 14 years after that visit, let's pause. I like to pause along the way. There are certain times that there's a thought that comes to mind that was not in my notes, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. 14 years. One of the things that happens when especially God calls someone to vocational ministry, which pause there. I got two pauses right now. This is a pause and a pause. Everyone has a calling that God's placed on your life. Everyone. Some are called to be godly businessmen. Some are called to be doctors, nurses, attorneys. Some are called to work in manufacturing. Some are called to be teachers. Some are called to be stay-at-home moms. Everybody has a calling, and one person's calling is not any better than another person's calling. But what I can say is if you try to live out somebody else's calling, you're going to be a frustrated person for your life. Find out who God made you to be and pour your life into that. But what happens a lot of times is when God has called someone specifically to vocational ministry, we get impatient saying, I'm called, put me in, coach. 
put me in. And we're looking. We're like, all right, this has to happen right now. I've been called. All right, it's time to preach. Where's a place to preach? Where's a place to serve? Did you know that this, he's letting us see there was three years he was sitting alone in the desert. Then there's another 14 years before he's connecting back over. That's a long time to not be connected with others as you're working out what God is working in. So the Apostle Paul has now been here. It's 14 years. And he says he met with Peter and James in Jerusalem again. So for 17 years now, he has been preaching the gospel without other human instruction around him. He had been given a message by God, direct revelation about what the gospel is. He tells us that in Galatians 1, 11 and 12. Now, the big question that everybody's asking, the big accusation that was coming against him from the Judaizers is, is it the same gospel? Is the gospel that Peter is preaching the same as the gospel that Paul is preaching? Now, if Paul has not been around these other guys for 17 years, how do you know it's the same thing? How do you know it's the same message? That's why Paul and Barnabas and Titus are now going to Jerusalem. According to verse number 2, Paul was prompted by a revelation of God to submit the gospel that he had been proclaiming to those of reputation in the council. Now, those of reputation would include Peter and John and James, the half-brother of Jesus, as well as the other apostles and the elders who would come. Now, after much debate, the consensus of the group was that the gospel that Paul preached was exactly the same as the gospel that was preached by the other apostles. All the other apostles agreed that God makes no distinction between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to the plan of salvation. It is always by grace through faith. So according to Acts chapter 15, verses 30 and 31, the believers who were in Antioch, when they heard the Jerusalem council's understanding of their letter, that it's the same gospel, it says they rejoiced. They're saying, Paul's been vindicated. His message has been validated. This is wonderful. But notice what he says at the end of verse 2. He submitted the gospel to those of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, again, we have to be real careful to make sure we get his point. Paul was not worried that what he was preaching was not biblical. He already knew that. He even said, I got it by direct revelation from God. I don't need the confirmation of man. That's not his concern here. Here was his concern. He knew that if the Judaizers convinced the other apostles that the law was necessary for salvation, it would infuse works into grace. It would confuse those that he had taught. He didn't want to look back and find that he had run in vain and all of his work had been in vain and his spiritual effort was in vain because the same people that he had been seeing set free by the gospel now go back and enslave themselves again to the law. That's what he's saying. He's like, I, I submitted this because I didn't want to look back and see that I had run in vain. That is so important in what's happening right here. By submitting the gospel that he preached to the other apostles, it only affirmed what he already knew. The gospel was not of his private interpretation. It wasn't of anybody else's private interpretation. Even though he had been separated from the other apostles for 17 years, it was the same gospel that was preached. Now, somebody might be like, well, 
He got it by God himself. Isn't that private interpretation? No, it's not. Here's what that means. It means that the same God who shared the gospel with Peter and James and John is the same God who also revealed the gospel to Paul. It's not everybody had their own interpretation. It is that God is the one who gave that interpretation. He's the one that brought that revelation. There is one interpretation, one understanding of the gospel, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the gospel we preach is not the gospel Christ gave, it is not the gospel at all. From the moment the gospel was given to this very day, there are enemies of grace who have been trying to add something to the finished work of Jesus Christ. They will say that salvation comes by faith in Jesus plus something else, plus baptism, plus good works, plus obeying the Ten Commandments. This is a hill worth dying on. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. It's just him. His work is enough. The cross was enough. What he did was enough. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes it so clear that he pronounces a curse on anyone, man or angel, who preaches a gospel other than the gospel of grace, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. So now we go back to where our conversation began. Every hill is not worth dying on. But the hill of the gospel is one that we must be vigilant to defend and be willing to die on if necessary. So here's my commitment to you. My commitment to you is I will continue to unapologetically preach the gospel of grace. That's the only message we have. Now here is your word of warning that goes along with that. We live in a world that is increasingly upset with the truths of God's word. Increasingly hostile to the gospel. There are going to be people who do not believe the gospel of redemption as it is outlined in scripture. There's going to be people who will attack this church because of the gospel stand that we provide. There's going to be attacks that will come. And it might not be a lot immediately, but the attacks will come. I've even wondered whether or not I need to share some of this, but let me give you some specifics on this. I've noticed in the last 15 years that the more that I preach the gospel of grace, that you are free in Christ, that you're no longer under the law, you're free in Christ, the more I've preached that, the more I see that the church I pastor comes under attack through different ways. Myself and Bria, all of our data got sold and put on the black market, on the dark web. We, we've fought battles for years on the fact that we keep having data breaches constantly. We've noticed over the years we had to begin blocking people from social media accounts because they would use the church's social media accounts to come back and to attack us against the gospel of grace. We've noticed that he says in here that there were those who were sent in to spy out our liberties We've had people who hear what's being proclaimed and they will send people into the small groups, into the connect groups, into the church body in order to bring a gospel other than the gospel of grace. All I can say is it's one thing to say, yes, keep preaching the gospel of grace. It's another thing to say when the attack comes and it's going to come. 
we're willing to keep standing with the gospel. There has to be a group that is willing to say, I'll die on that hill so that the next generation is able to experience the freedom that we have in Christ. If the gospel we preach is not the gospel Christ gave, it is not the gospel at all. Now here's how we're going to finish things out. This is not your memory verse, but I'm going to throw out an additional one for you. Because some of you all are overachievers. I know some of you have already memorized that verse. I'm going to give you another one. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. And do not, do not, do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Our upcoming book for this month, and many people have already got it. I already had somebody tell me this morning they already read it. I'm like, come on. Like today's the third. They've already finished the book. I'm going to give them more homework next week too. But anyway, (laughs) our book this month is Victory in Christ by Charles Trumbull. This is one of those books. It's a small read, but it's one that I'll go back to either every year or every other year. There's certain truths that you'll get to in your Christian life, and one of these is identity. One of these is positional truth. It's out of our position in Christ that we now have possessions in Christ. We're we're studying a little bit in Ephesians. There's going to be a time down the road. We're going to go verse by verse through Ephesians. But in the process of doing so, that is a book that is drenched in positional truth. If you have time this next week, it's only several different chapters. Go through and highlight every time it says, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, in the spirit. Every time it is in him, you're talking about positional truth. You are in Christ, Christ is in you. Positional truth. Now, here's why I'm bringing that up. Books like what we're getting into for this month, Victory in Christ, it's going to keep reinforcing positional truth. That's how our identity is developed. That's how we know who we are. And when you know who you are, you're not tossed about by every cultural wave, every issue that happens in society. There is a settled confidence in knowing you are in Christ, Christ is in you, and ultimately our Savior wins. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We're excited about an ongoing opportunity you give us to spend time together studying your word alone with you in the word and in prayer and God we thank you for the fact that we have victory in Christ Lord I ask that you would develop deep intimacy with every single person that is a part of this church that we might be able to experience a fullness of what it means to know you deeply God we thank you for what you're doing in Jesus name amen you all have a wonderful night We'll see you this next week.